Good morning, church. As you're taking your seats, you can also take your Bibles and open them to the passage our friend Carrie just read, Mark chapter 15, looking this morning at verses 1 through 20. This is a somber passage this morning. This is a passage that, uh, to be honest, I wasn't really looking forward to studying uh, because it's gruesome. It's violent. Uh, this, would, this would be a scene that you would not want your young children to watch. This would be one of those movies growing up that your, your parents wouldn't let you watch because it would be for sure rated R for strong, bloody violence, graphic nudity, intense images, pervasive language. I grew up in the church, and I grew up hearing the stories of the Gospels, and it's, it's, it was easy, or it can be easy for me, and I think for us, to kind of to hear this passage being read, to read it, and to kind of glance over what's really happening, kind of glance over what Jesus went through, what Jesus endured in this moment. You hear a word like scourge, or beat, spit on. This would be a scene I think if some of us saw, we would, we would puke. We'd have nightmares about this. Last week we learned that Jesus was before the council, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they held a secret meeting and they condemned Jesus for blasphemy. Jesus was shown standing silent before false accusations. Jesus proved innocent because the testimonies wouldn't agree. This is what Nathan preached on Last week, we saw that Peter denied Jesus three times in fulfillment to the promise that Jesus gave him, showing him how weak his faith was, how his boasting that he would not deny Jesus was nullified within the day. Nathan reminded us, and he compared the juxtaposition of Peter and Jesus Showing us where our righteousness comes from. Nathan, thank you for that word. That was a great message last week, reminding us where righteousness really comes from. And we see this morning, starting in, in verse 1, chapter 15, that as soon as it was morning, the chief priests who got together, they, they had this council at night, they condemned Jesus, they brought him before Pilate. See, the chief priests and the scribes, they didn't have power to execute someone. They didn't have the power to condemn someone. They didn't have the authority to enact capital punishment, so they had to lead him away to Pilate, who was the ruling authority. He was the Roman governor. That's why it says they bound him, they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate, because it was only the Romans who had the right to execute someone. It was only the Roman ruler who had that authority. I think Mark uses this language delivered to remind us that all of this is happening according to God's plan, God's sovereignty, God's promise. This fulfills what had to be done, that God was, in fact, behind this and willing this all to happen. This was happening as Jesus promised to his disciples that he would be handed over, that he would be delivered, that he would be mocked, that he would be beaten. And he's delivered over to Pilate. Now, Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea. He was 
normally ruling and reigning in a city called Caesarea, but because of the Passover festival, he would come into Jerusalem to make sure that nothing would get out of hand. We remember in talking about what would happen in, in Jerusalem, large crowds of people would come into the city, and there could be upheavals, there could be riots, and Pilate would be brought into Jerusalem to make sure that nothing got out of hand. It was said by Josephus that Pilate wasn't a good ruler. He reigned from about A.D. 25, 26 to A.D. 30, and Josephus describes him as greedy and disrespectful to the Jewish faith. It was also said that he mishandled certain situations in the past, which is why some historians think that he was so quick to crucify Jesus because he wanted to keep the peace. He wanted to keep his position. Pilate was in charge of the army. He was in charge of gathering taxes, and he was in charge of, of most importantly in this moment, we see keeping the peace. That's why people think he was so quick to, to crucify an innocent man and crucify Jesus. And this is why the, the religious leaders, the religious rulers, bring Jesus to Pilate because they want him executed, and only Pilate can do that. And it says in verse 2, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, if you remember last week, the reason that the religious leaders and the chief priests and the scribes got so frustrated was not that he called himself the king of the Jews. It was because he called himself the Christ, the son of God. And for that, they said, blasphemy, what other word do we need? But it's interesting how when they come to Pilate, they don't try to get him to to see, oh, Pilate, this guy's a blasphemer, execute him. Because Pilate doesn't care. Pilate's not a Jew. He doesn't adhere to the Jewish faith. He doesn't care if someone is claiming to be Jewish, a, a king of the, or excuse me, the son of God, the Christ. He doesn't care about that. But what he would care about is someone claiming to be king, someone threatening Roman rule. And this is how the, the Jewish leaders approach it. They say, this guy claimed to be king of the Jews. This is what Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 23. They, they come to Philip, or Philip, Pilate, and they say he's misled our nation. He's forbidding taxes to Caesar, and he's claiming that he is king. For this, this could be worthy of capital punishment. This could be worthy of execution. This could be worthy of treason, claiming to be king, claiming to be a threat against Rome. Uh, one of my commentaries this week said it like this. Jesus, who is indeed king of the Jews in a deeply spiritual sense, has refused to lead a political uprising. Yet now, condemned for blasphemy by the Jews because of spiritual claims, he is accused by them before Pilate for being precisely what he had disappointed the crowds for failing to be a political insurgent. See the hypocrisy there? Jesus answered him, you have said so kind of confusing what he says that. Another way of saying this could be like, is it, it is as you say, or whatever you said. Uh, scholars and commentators agree that what Jesus seems to be saying here is, I am the king of the Jews, but I'm not the same king that you're probably thinking of. My concept of a kingdom, my idea of what a king is, is not the same as what you're thinking of. It's different than what you think. And Mark goes on to say that the, they, they try to accuse him of many things, and Pilate, he looks specifically to Jesus and he says, Jesus, have you no other answer to make? See all these charges they bring against you. 
And it says, Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed. It's important that we remember that. Remember that as we digress into the story. Pilate was amazed. This word, it means to be very amazed, as in a state of wonder, to marvel. Pilate was amazed at this man who was just standing silent before these accusations, not saying a word. He wasn't trying to fight back or defend himself. He wasn't answering these false charges that were brought against him. And it says in verse six, verse six, now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner whom they had asked. This is a custom that Mark was telling us about. A custom every year, I guess, Pilate would release a prisoner for them. And it says, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Release for us one prisoner. And Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And again, get this. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered up. So see Pilate, he's amazed at Jesus. He perceives that the chief priests, they're doing all this out of envy. Pilate seems to be recognizing that Jesus is innocent. The only real reason that they are against Jesus in this moment is because they're envious, they're Jealous? Commentator by the name of David Garland said it like this. Many today are like Pilate. They prefer Jesus to be they prefer Jesus to the envious, malicious high priest and the violent Barabbas. But that is as far as it goes. They see no harm in him, but they see nothing else. And therefore they see no reason to risk anything for him. They regard Jesus as simply king of the Jews and do not recognize that he is king of kings. So Pilate's amazed. He recognizes that Jesus is innocent. He perceives that this is all of jealousy. He seeks to go to the crowd, and Mark describes her that it's like the chief priests, they, they got there first. They got to the crowds first, and they started to stir up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas. The chief priests, they go to the crowd first. They, they manipulate them. They stir up the crowd. And I can see, I can sense in this moment that the chief priests, like, they have Jesus like on their crosshairs and they're not going to let him get away. Like they, they can taste blood and they're not going to let him get away. They, they have already conspired, they've questioned, they've challenged, they've condemned him. They're not going to let Jesus slip away from their grasp in this moment. So they do whatever it takes. They, they stir up the crowd, they manipulate them. And the crowd chooses Barabbas over Jesus. The crowd chooses a, a rebel, a murderer, someone who's tied to the insurrection, who tried to overthrow Rome, and they choose Barabbas over Jesus, who was a peaceful, patient teacher, not trying to defend himself, gently describing who he is, and the crowd chooses Barabbas. They seek to end Jesus, who is the innocent one, the pure one, the without evil, and Barabbas goes free, the murderer, the rebel, the one who deserved death. And in this moment, we get such a clear picture of the gospel, don't we? Jesus takes Barabbas' place. 
the murderer, the one who was guilty, the one who deserved to be executed, the one who really committed treason, who tried to overthrow the Roman rule, goes free for the innocent one, Jesus. And Pilate says to them, what shall I do with the man that you call king of the Jews? And you can see how, how stirred up this crowd is. They say, crucify him. End him. So it seems like Pilate's still a little confused. Like, this, this kind of escalated quickly. A, a guy who is innocent, a guy who looks like you're just getting accused based on jealousy, and now the whole crowd is shouting, crucify he says, why? What evil has he done? Kyle's not going to hear it. It's like they're not even going to listen. They shout all the more, crucify him. This crowd has been so manipulated that they don't even listen. Now, it might have been that in this moment, they've been really disappointed by Jesus. You know, in the triumphal entry, he came into Jerusalem. They hailed him as Messiah. They thought, yeah, this is the one. This is the guy who's going to overthrow these Romans. This is our Messiah, our political leader, who's going to restore Jerusalem, restore Israel to its rightful place of power. But he's just, he's too weak. He hasn't proven himself. He's not the person that he said he was. Crucify him. Let's end him. Verse 15, so we see Pilate, amazed, perceiving Jesus innocent, but verse 15, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released for them Barabbas and had Jesus scourged and delivered him over to be crucified. In this moment, we see that both the religious and the irreligious rulers, authorities, they condemn Jesus. All the way up into this point, Marcus showed us that the religious people, these rulers, these scribes, these chief priests, they hated Jesus. He challenged their way of life. He revealed their hypocrisy of, in regards to their obedience to the law. They weren't following the greatest commandment, loving God with all their heart and their neighbor. He was exposing some of their idols, and they hated it. We also see in this moment that the irreligious condemn. Those who don't worship God, don't know God, they're still condemning Jesus. I don't think this is the main point, and I, I don't want to get off of my exegesis here. But I thought it was interesting as I was studying this week that the people who paint a negative picture of Jesus to the irreligious is the religious. And I've, I've sadly, I've found that to be true a lot as I've talked with people that are outside the church, that are secret, that are skeptical, or maybe were uh, kind of closed off to Jesus. When you press into why that is, oftentimes there was this, there was a quote, religious person, there was this past pastor, church leader, church whatever, who gave them a negative view of what the gospel is and who Jesus is, and they don't want anything to do with it. Now, I don't think that's the main point here, but I just thought that was interesting that, that this irreligious, this pagan ruler, Pilate, is swayed, is manipulated by these religious people who hate Jesus. Anyways. Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, uh, releases Barabbas, but then he scourges Jesus. 
And that's not a word that I use in my daily vernacular, scourge. Um, maybe if you're familiar with this story, you're familiar with scourging, you know what scourging is. But maybe if you're not, scourging is, is gruesome, it's, it's horrible. Scourging would happen when uh, a man would be stripped naked and he would be tied to a pole, or two people on each side would have these whips. And the whips would have, they would be long pieces of leather, and interwoven in the leather would be like bone, metal, hooks, things that were designed to stick and grab flesh and rip it off. So when you were scourged, you would be tied to a, a post, and two men, usually on either side, would, would flog. And as the cat of nine tails would whip into the flesh, and they would, they would literally rip chunks of flesh off of you, and then... When your back and your legs were, were too mangled, they'd flip you over. I have here, a, the following is a medical doctor's description of the effects of flogging. It comes from a book, uh, The Crucifixion of Jesus, The Passion of the Christ from a Medical Point of View, by a guy named Dr. C, or Dr. C. Truman Davis. It says it like this, The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy, the heavy whip would cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continued, they would, deeper, they would cut deeper into tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is unrecognizable masses of torn, bleeding tissue." This is what scourging would do. So you can imagine, if you were to see this, how you would... I, I, I couldn't watch it. I don't think we could watch this. It's not surprising that victims of Roman floggings, they seldom survived, even. A scourge. Many people believe that the, he was scourged so badly because they wanted him to die before sundown. But after he scourged, verse 16, the soldiers lead him away into the palace and they gather together the whole battalion. Now a whole battalion, this could be up to 600 people. 600 people. This would be to shame him as a rebel against Rome. They're treating Jesus as a threat in this moment by gathering 600 people. And as he's gathered in front of these soldiers, they clothe him in a purple robe, they twist together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they begin to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They strike his head with a reed, they spit on him, and they kneel down in homage to him. Now, in Jesus' day, spitting was one of the most disrespectful things that you could ever do to a man. They would spit on him, they were beating him with a reed. And again, look what Jesus is not doing. It's not fighting back. It's not defending himself. All the way up to this point, Mark has shown us the power that Jesus has in his very words. That just at a word, he can cast out demons. Just at a word, he can calm seas. And you gotta think, just as a word, he could have destroyed everyone. You think about this. These people were beating God. They were spitting on God. And he took it. I mean, if anyone had the right to just see you guys later, fire comes down, I'm going to get out of this. This is getting uncomfortable. It was Jesus. 
If anyone had the right to defend himself or fight back, it was Jesus. But they continually mock him. They strip him of this cloak. They put on clothes on him, and they lead him out to crucify him. Even when I was studying this week, as someone would be condemned to crucify and they'd be let out, they'd be whipped along the way. We see and we know from other accounts that Jesus was so weak, he couldn't even carry his own cross. He couldn't have survived any additional beating. And at this very moment, Jesus, he had been denied by his best, one of his best friends. He had been abandoned by his friends, the twelve. He had been stripped naked and shamed and beaten. He had been spit on. All things, all punishments for things that he had never done any wrong. Completely innocent, faultless, as Nathan said last week. He was slandered, he was misrepresented, he was flogged, he was spit on, he was rejected, beaten, and abused, yet he was silent. This fulfills the prophecy that Isaiah gave in, in chapter 53, verse 7. It says, talking about the Messiah, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You think about an account like this, we say, why, why is it so horrific? Why is it so brutal? Why did he endure all of this? That's why I love what the rest of Isaiah 53 says. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there with me. If not, I'll be, I'll be reading it. Isaiah 53. We'll start in verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one who, who people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Why did Jesus have to endure such a horrific, painful experience? To bring healing. Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the offering for our sins. By his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's why in this moment, you can be horrified. We can weep for what we have done to Jesus, but we can rejoice that he bore it for us, that he took our sin and our shame, that the Lord put our sin and our iniquity and the punishment that we deserved on Jesus so that we might be free. Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living and for the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence 
nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes him his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his land. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he, numbered was, and he was numbered with many transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is why Jesus suffered. This is why Jesus was mocked and slandered. He takes our place. He is our offering in the place of our sin. Praise God. Scandalous. So what I'd like to do now is is try to experience this story more personally. As I was reading this week, I I found myself in this story in verses 1 through 20, kind of reading it from outside, reading as kind of the story was taking place in front of me. And that's understandable because I wasn't there. It happened a long time ago. This is a story of of talking about what has happened. But I think it would be helpful for us this morning to try to put ourselves in the story. It's helpful for me this week to try to put myself inside the story, put myself in the shoes of the soldiers, the shoes of Pilate, the shoes of the chief priest, the shoes of the crowd. Like I said earlier, I think there's a tendency for, for myself as a grew up in church my whole life, heard this story so many times. Many of us, that's the case. Maybe we've heard this story before. There's a tendency. Uh, we can hear the story and kind of move by it, go right to the crucifixion. There's a tendency for us to start believing a lie that we're pretty good people. We weren't cer- certainly as wicked as the people in this story. I'm not a Barabbas. I'm not a chief priest. I'm not, the, I'm not Pilate. I'm not the soldiers. I've never done that to Jesus. There's a tendency in my own heart to forget how wicked I really am, how sinful I am, because surely I'm not as bad as they are. I would never have done anything that bad. And here's what I think we should read the story and, and think through it is identify with the evil. Identify with the soldiers. We are like the chief priests and Pilate and the crowd and Barabbas and the soldiers. I, I think we should do this not so that I want to try to condemn you, to try to beat you over the head and make you feel like garbage. I do this because I want you to experience God's grace more deeply. I want you to really see how scandalous his love for you is. To see how much he has done for you. This is why we talk about sin at the Mountain Church. If we never talked about sin, what would be the point of grace? Right? If we don't talk about sin, then you guys don't need to hear me talk about Jesus. You don't need to gather with the church. You don't need to sing to him because you're really not that bad. You don't really need a savior. So yeah, live your life, man. Do it. But there is sin. I mean, otherwise, what, are we just like a social club that gets together because we like each other? 
We talk about sin because now we want to be about doom and gloom because it's with a proper and deep understanding of our flaws, our weakness, our sin, that we grow in our appreciation of God's grace and his love, and it strengthens us more deeply. So let me just kind of work through how I think we're like these different characters that we see in, in the gospel according to Mark. Number one, we are like the chief priests and the scribes. We are like the elders and the scribes. We want to destroy Jesus. Now, right off the bat, you might think, okay, nope, never done that. I have never actively sought to destroy Jesus. But if we have the religious bent, or if we have the bent in which, you know, I'm not really that bad of a person, I'm pretty good, then that's what we are doing to Jesus. It's not really necessary. We don't really need Jesus. We can be like the chief priests and the scribes when Jesus challenges our way of life and we don't like it. And instead of maybe actively trying to end Jesus like we see in the chief priests and the scribes, we can just neglect to do what he asked of us. We can forget some of Jesus' commands. We can not read over those portions of the Gospels where Jesus has some of those harsher commands, those commands that maybe rub us the wrong way that we don't like, that if we actually were to follow through on what Jesus said, we might have to change how we live. I mean, that would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? So we don't even go there. Anyone done this? Yeah. I do this one all the time. There's other ways I'm sure we're like the chief priests in the skies, but, uh, and maybe you're even thinking about how you're like that right now. Number two, we are like Pilate. We are amazed at Jesus, and yet we are satisfied with seeking our own comfort or making sure that our positions are kept safe. We are satisfied in other things other than Jesus. We are satisfied in comfort, in approval, in status rather than Christ. That's how we can be just like Pilate. I'm just like Pilate. People pleaser. I care what people think about me a lot. And oftentimes that means I, I'm seeking satisfaction and approval rather than what God says about me and, and his approval. I'm not being satisfied and delighted and living out of my identity in Christ. That's what we can be like Pilate. We are like the soldiers. The soldiers, they mock, they beat, they spit on Jesus. And what's interesting, and, and throughout this moment, they, they pay homage to Jesus as king, right? Mark describes, hail, king of the Jews. This is what the soldiers say to Jesus. But it's just lip service. They don't really mean what they're saying. They're mocking him. They don't really worship Jesus as king. They're not really kneeling in submission to Jesus as the king of kings. Just making fun of him. They're just saying, hey, hey, king of the Jews, hail king of the Jews. We're like the crowd. We oftentimes are caught up in the moment. We're manipulated by others. Condemn an innocent man. Our consciences are, are swayed. Finally, I, I think I can identify most with Barabbas, the rebel, the murderer. 
the one deserving of death. We are like Barabbas. And we have not just rebelled against Roman rule, or we might not have rebelled against the United States government. We have not all committed treason against our government, but we have rebelled against the highest authority. We are rebels against the highest king. We have rejected him. The Bible says that all people have fallen short. All people have sinned. All people have gone astray. All people have preferred, desired other things other than God. But I know in this moment that Jesus is taking this. As he's being beaten and mocked and spit on, he is knowing, I'm doing this for you. I still offer my forgiveness to you. As Jesus is on the cross even, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus died for the sins of the chief priests. Jesus died for the sins of Pilate. He died for the sins of the soldiers. He died for the sins of the crowd. He died for the sins of Barabbas. He died for our sins. And just like Barabbas, Jesus takes our place if we trust and put our faith in him. Jesus is the ransom, as Mark talks about. Jesus is the redeemer. He is the innocent man who took the place of us, the murderers, the rebels. And just as Jesus is delivered to Pilate, he's delivered to be crucified. He does this to deliver you from sin, from shame, from guilt, from death, by suffering in your place. This is who Jesus is. He is our deliverer. Jesus can and will deliver you if you place your trust, your faith, your life into his hands. And church, if we have trusted, if we trust in this, Jesus has delivered us. Jesus is delivering us and Jesus will deliver us. Amen? Jesus is our deliverer. He is mighty to save. He has bore our sins. He has suffered in our place. He has shamed our shame. So in light of this passage, I think there's a couple implications of what this means for us as Christians, as disciples. If you trust in this gospel, if you believe in what Jesus has done, he has taken your place and covered your sin, I think, number one, if you believe in the gospel, if you believe in this, if you identify with the evil in this moment that you are just like Barabbas, then you will continually come back and back again to this story, to this gospel. You will grow in humility. As Christians, we should be humble people. I mean, the Bible, in fact, even says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I think to the degree to which you understand, appreciate, delight in the gospel is the degree to which you will humble yourself and assume the posture of a humble servant. Practically, this means I think we should be good listeners. We should want to hear what other people say. Practically, I thought about this this week as we were having dinner with some friends. It means that if there's one little portion of food left, you should ask everyone else if they want it first. Right? I don't do this a lot, though. I love food. 
I don't share food. There's one last portion left. I'm going to take that before anyone else does, especially living in the house with Micah. Right? <laughs> if I don't eat this now, Micah's going to eat it later. What about in arguments? What about in conflict? Are you quick to try to defend yourself or justify yourself or prove what you have to say as you are in the right? Or do you want to listen to what the other person has to say? Do you want to listen about how you might have been in the wrong? Number two, I think disciples should be submissive people. If you are a Christian, you confess that you are the Barabbas, you are the chief priest, you are the the murderer, the adulterer, the rebel, that left, if left to yourself, you would have freely chosen a life of sin, suffering, and death, and hell. But in God's grace, he has saved you. He has brought you back to life. The Bible says he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the, the wonderful kingdom of life. With this understanding, I think disciples should be submissive because they come to Jesus and say, I tried to be my own Lord, and it went terribly. Jesus, I trust you as my Lord. Jesus, I tried to be my God and it led me to a path of destruction. I trust and I submit to your leadership. I want to obey your commands because mine were self-destructive. I trust that you have everything that I need. You are my abundant life. You are my true satisfaction. You are my rest. You are my master. Jesus, in fact, tells his disciples, you can't follow two masters. You can't follow God and also follow someone else. I know we like to do that. We like to think that we can do that. We like to think that we're the exception. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. So if we are disciples, we trust and we acknowledge that, yes, I was like Barabbas. I was like the chief priest and the scribes. I was a rebellion, a rebel against your cause. I was headstrong towards hell, yet Jesus, you saved me. Therefore, I trust in your leadership. I submit to you. Number three, disciples are secure, assured, confident in their standing before God because of Christ. I love the passage Nathan referenced last week. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we believe in this gospel, that Jesus has taken our place, that he has crucified our our sin and our shame on the cross. There's no condemnation. Disciples should not be enslaved to the shame of our sin. And I think this means too that sin that we've committed and and sin that's been committed against us. There's a shame that we can feel not only for sins that we've done, but sins that have been committed against us. And maybe some of you this morning, you have a shame this morning that you're trying to bear on yourself. Know this, brother, that sister, Jesus has borne your shame. He's taken your shame. He crucified to the cross. Maybe you've been neglected, you've been abused, you've been rejected. You're struggling with the shame and the guilt and rejection. Look up, look to Jesus, look at the cross. I'm not saying it's going to go away. 
instantaneously. I'm not saying it's not going to be hard. It's a process. But trust that one day there will be no more shame. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more hardship. Perfection will come. Healing will come. Number four, disciples should be peaceful and patient. I think we can get this from Jesus, right? In the midst of everything that's going down, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the suffering, the beating, he keeps us cool. He's peaceful. He is patient. He trusts that the Father has a plan even in this. He trusts that he's doing this for the sins of his people. He's doing it out of love. Finally, lastly, a disciple should have a heart for the poor and desire justice for the oppressed. And we have this heart for the least of these because as Jesus says, we realize that this is what Jesus became for us. He was poor. He was afflicted. He was oppressed. We can identify with the poor too because before Christ, we were spiritually poor. We were oppressed by sin, by shame, by Satan. We can identify with the oppressed, the trafficked, the abused because this was our life before Christ. How is your heart to the poor? Do you have a heart for the poor? Do you have a heart for the oppressed? I hope the mentality is not, they deserve what they're getting. Is that in line with what the gospel teaches? I want us to think about uh, this week and this morning as we transition into a time of worship through communion on maybe how we are, are, are like the chief priest describes Barabbas. I want us to think about maybe how we are still like that even. Maybe we are, are hard-hearted or we're, we're not trusting that Jesus is our Lord and we're not submitting to his commands or we're, we're still holding on to something. Maybe it's shame, maybe it's sin, maybe it's guilt. I hope and pray that, that God might use this time as a time of healing. As you confess sin, as you come back to him, as you repent as you thank him for what he did for you on the cross, as you hear the words of the gospel spoken over you, Christ's body given for you, Christ's blood shed for you, that we can experience now true freedom, true joy, and that we might respond accordingly in worshiping Jesus wholeheartedly and singing to him loudly and experiencing his grace more deeply. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder in this passage, this somber passage on what you have done for us. Thank you. Thank you for bearing our shame. Thank you for taking our sin.
Father, thank you for crushing your son so that we would not be crushed by the wrath and the punishment and the judgment that we deserve. Father, I pray now that uh, this passage, this time, would be a, a time of encouragement. This would be a time in which God's grace is, is better understood, is better realized. That we might get a fresh taste, experience, a vision of the love that he has for us. And that might, it might shatter the way we live, transform the way we love that we might be humble people, we might be patient people, we might be submissive people, we would be obedient people, but we would be a people that are concerned for the poor, for the oppressed, who fight for justice. So Father, I ask now that you would do a work of your Holy Spirit to encourage us, to equip us, to grow us closer to you and closer to one another. I ask this in your son's name. Amen. I think it can be easy for us as we kind of get through in this routine of doing communion. And even now I'm just realizing I never asked someone to do communion this week. So Kelly and Phil, would you guys come forward? Um, it can be really easy in this time to kind of just go through the motions to kind of become callous to the gospel or callous to the reality of what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection really means for us. And I feel like I, I, I've been convicted this week of my hard-heartedness, my callousness towards the gospel. I just want to have a word for, for those who might be hard-hearted or calloused. And, and this is not to guilt shame upon those who maybe feel shame wrongly or feel shame that they shouldn't, but I think there is a kind of shame, a kind of guilt, a kind of conviction that should come over sin. And while there's no condemnation, there's no guilt, there's no shame in Christ, there still should be conviction. And I, I never want us to, as a church, kind of go through the motions or, or start to get callous to sin or kind of be proud of our sin or be unrepentant in our sin. Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the sin, of, excuse me, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Paul writes to the church in, in Philippi, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What I think Paul is getting at here is that we need Jesus every day. That his salvation is not only something that is, is past, but it's present and it's future. There's three parts of salvation, and it includes a present one. We are being saved by Jesus. And when we are reborn, when we are regenerated, we acknowledge Jesus as our Lord. That means we want to follow him. We want to obey him. What I think Paul is getting at here in working out salvation with fear and trembling is mean make your salvation operational. Make it functional. Let it work into your life and permeate itself and work itself out. 
Fear and trembling does not mean that we live in guilt, anxiety, fear that we'll never be good enough for God's grace because we're not and we won't be. What this means is that we should have a reverence and a respect for God's holiness. We should have a fear of God that causes us to actively seek to put to death sin. And I want to say this now before we take communion because I don't want us ever get to a place where we are comfortable with our sin, where we are calloused with our sin. Because what begins to happen is we, oh, that sin's not really that big of a deal, or you know, I, I'm not going to confess that one, I'm not going to try to repent of that one. It hardens us. It calluses us. So that we become, we dig our heels in, we become more ingrained in the sin, and it blinds us. The thought that a Christian is comfortable, happy, relaxed with sin in their life is dangerous because God's grace is never meant as a, as a free pass for sin. It's transformative to put to death sin. So I just ask, I, I want us to think about that as we come to communion this morning. Just think about this, please. Please don't be comfortable in sin. If the Holy Spirit right now is, is working in your heart and is bringing something to mind, don't try to, try to silence that or, or hide it or put it away or mask it. I don't, I don't know if there's anyone in this room that is, is doing that right now. I just feel like I, I wanted to say this in this moment because we take communion every week and it's something that can very easily become routine and I'm just going through the motions and I don't want that. That's not what it's about. So I ask now, as you, as you come to the table, that you do so at your own pace, that I, I really do that you, you do so prayerfully, considering this word. And I, I hope and pray that, uh, that through this time and through this moment that uh, you would experience God's grace more clearly and that you would grow in him. So the table is now open. Please come at your own pace.